The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Pinchas Taylor presents his lecture, Jewish Astrology, An In-Depth Look. So astrology is described as the science of the stars. It's the science of the stars, which, in which an individual seeks to learn about one's nature, one's qualities, or even the future. The word astrology is actually a Greek word, comes from the Greek word astron, which means a star, and logos, which means study. So it's the study of the stars and how the heavenly bodies and earthly events correspond with each other. Okay, so far so good. Now, astrology has been used by a wide array of different cultures throughout history, both past and present. Now, although astrology doesn't have the current central place that it does in our society like it once did, it's still something that is uh, treated as significant, as a point of interest. So the question is, where does Judaism fall in all of this? Is it something, is there legitimacy to astrology? Does Judaism uphold any aspect of it? So let's, let's talk about a very brief history of astrology to kind of warm us up, all right? Yeah, everybody excited? All right, let's go. So I'm excited, all right. So, Astrology is something that has fascinated humanity since the beginning. In the, the ancient Babylonians, it seems that Babylonian astrology was the very first organized system of astrology rising in about the second millennium BCE, about 4,000 years ago or so. And so, uh, as we're going to see, many prominent figures in history and the history of civilization have been identified as philosophers, astronomers, and theologians, they are also astrologers. So again, it's something that has, from the beginning of, uh, of human history, been something people have enjoyed. Now, astrology made its way to Europe through uh, the Greek civilization. Greeks were very into it. Uh, Pythagoras developed a theory uh, for the harmony between uh, what goes on in the heavens and what goes on on the earth. Um, medicine in, Greek, in the Greek times was heavily influenced by the study of astrology. Hippocrates, uh, who was considered, is considered the father of medicine, used astrology as a primary means of diagnosis. This was something, again, that was a pillar, a core of civilization back in those days. In the second century BCE, the Romans, uh, they received astrology from the Greeks, and they, uh, they were the ones that developed the system. They adopted the Greek system of astrology and the zodiac, and they named the planets in our solar system after their gods, after their Roman gods, right? So Mars and Jupiter, all, these are all Roman god names. They also named the days of the week, and we're going to get into that. Uh, that we have, why we have Sunday and Monday and what, what all that means. We're going to get into all that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay? So, when from it, it got into Europe through the Greeks, Romans came into power, Romans developed it a bit more. Uh, this was something that 
throughout those centuries, throughout many centuries, really until the Renaissance, astrology played a very prominent role in people's lives. Right, throughout the Roman Empire, once Christianity comes on the scene, many of the early church fathers sort of uh, were successful in getting astrology to put, be put more on the back burner because it didn't fit into their worldview. And so it was something that when they had power and control, that it was something that was sort of uh, put on the lowdown, put on the back burner. But the truth is that astrology was something that played a very prominent, pay, a very prominent place even in academia until the times of the Renaissance. In fact, in academia, astrology sort of fell out from being classified as a legitimate study in, around the, in, the, in the Renaissance times, um, really fully in the 17th and 18th centuries. That's when it kind of fell out of vogue to be like studying astrology. Um, but prior to that, when you said the word astronomy, or you said the word astrology, or you said the word mathematician, you were essentially saying the same thing. All three, were, could be, all three words could be used interchangeably. And so there, the modern manifestation, when we think of astrology, what do we think about? Newspaper horoscopes. We think about what's your sign, what's your sun sign, what month were you born in. These are kind of vague, watered-down manifestations of astrology, the way that it was studied prior, in prior generations until the time of the Renaissance was in an academic circles. And there, were, there was a lot of math and a lot of astronomy involved in the astrological uh, ideas. So the shift in acceptance happened during the times of the Renaissance. Different cultural change, changes were happening at the time. Another thing that changed at the time was Copernicus. Copernicus comes with a new model of how the solar system works. He wasn't the one that put the kibosh on astrology. Uh, in fact, many of uh, people that were in the, in the same time, same generation, Galileo was, was also involved in astrology. So in, in fact, the greatest proponents of Copernican thought were also astrologers. Galileo, Kepler, they were practitioners. They were practicing astrologers. So we can't say that from, from, the time Coper, from the time of Copernicus, that was the, that was the uh, final hammer blow, and, and then astrology's off the... It, it was a slow evolution of how it sort of was dethroned from its central part in, our, in society. Rekindled interest comes about in the early 20th century. There's a, a revival of mysticism and mystical ideas, occultic knowledge, and so there's a, there was a a revival of astrological uh, ideas. This was something that became more in vogue, more mainstream, again, not mainstream, but more publicized. And then with publications, especially in the 1930s, beginning of the 1930s, where it would be in newspapers and they'd put what's your, what your horoscope is for that day or whatever it is, this popularized astrology again in, uh, in society. But many of our great leaders and historical figures consulted astrologers, used astrology in their lives. John Dee, who was a prominent astrologer, he was advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. William Shakespeare makes over a hundred different references to astrology in his works. 
Napoleon and his wife Josephine both sought consultation from prominent astrologers. Uh, J.P. Morgan, it says that he uh, was said to visit an astrologer named Evangeline Adams every morning on his way to work. I bet. In fact, um, some of the U.S. presidents, early U.S. presidents really dabbled in astrology and uh, the occult. Some of the early, the founding fathers were very interested and involved with mysticism and the occult. Um, in, in more modern times, Gene Dixon, a prominent astrologer, told Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1945 that he didn't have long to live. Uh, he died a few months later. In the same year, that same astrologer told Winston Churchill that he was going to lose his next election, but then would return to power later. And that's what happened. That's what took place. Richard Nixon followed the astrological predictions of Gene Dixon. Uh, Donald Reagan, who was the former chief of staff to Ronald Reagan, wrote that virtually every move and decision that happened during the Reagan years was made during, uh, was, that was made during his time as, as the White House staff um, was cleared through an astrologer, Joan Quigley, and uh, who drew up horoscopes and made sure that certain planetary influences were fitting for different meetings and events that were being. So, I mean, we are talking about prominent people, historical figures that engaged in this. Interestingly enough, even though the Nazis, may their names be obliterated forever, the Nazis, they were... They were executing people that were astrologers. Yet Himmler and Hess had an astrologer that they would consult to try to, to try to formulate different routes. In fact, there was a group, small group, uh, from, from the Brits that wanted to sort of counteract that. That in Britain, there was a small group that they were contracting certain astrologers to try to figure out what route the Germans were going to take. In other words, if the Germans were consulting an astrologer, we want someone who's going to also kind of see what the lay of the land is, that we can get some insight into what they're thinking and preempt any attacks. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, what about Jewish tradition? Okay, so at a first glance, the Bible seems to disregard the use of astrology. The Torah text doesn't make any interest or doesn't take any, go, go in any length about star charts or astrological consultation. Uh, there's a scarcity of astronomical or astrological knowledge that's relayed in the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's quite interesting given the enormous importance that astrology played during that time in history. Everywhere else around, astrology was like the thing. But the, the Hebrew Bible, written at the same time, in the same region of the world, same general region of the world, doesn't really contain all that much reference, doesn't really contain any references, openly to astrology. In fact, the only interest, the only, the only mentions of astrology, the astrologer gets the information sort of incorrect. Potiphar's wife seeks to seduce Joseph because an astrologer said, an astrologer told her, that she was supposed to have a child through him. Well, she was wrong. Pharaoh drowns the Jewish boys in the Nile, hearing from his astrologers that the Redeemer of the Jews is going to have his end come through the water. Well, Moses, who was the Redeemer of the Jewish people, his end did come from the water when he, uh, when he hit the rock instead of talking to the rock. But it wasn't through the Nile, right? So there was this vague, it wasn't completely true what the astrologers were telling. 
The biblical, prophet, the biblical prophets seem to scoff at astrologers and stargazers. Haman, Haman, was said to be a well-versed astrologer who sought to cast lots and forecast what would be the effective date to destroy the Jews. So the general outlook seems to be sort of like a negative tinge on astrology from a superficial view. In the Talmudic era, knowledge of the planets and their role in astrology becomes ever more prevalent in Jewish literature. And we find astrology listed, mentioned in the Talmud. It's referred to at least 10 times uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. And sometimes the practitioners of astrology are called the Chaldeim uh, or Chaldei, which, uh, which is the Babylonians who practiced this art. Istagninus is a word that's used, uh, which was more common. It's the Aramaic equivalent of astrology. And in the Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the word astrologia is, is used. So it is something that plays a role, that there's mention of. Now, what's the role of astrology in Judaism? So Abraham and his descendants are described as being above the influence of the stars. And at the same time, the Talmud mentions that Abraham himself was a fantastic astrologer. It was a well-known astrologer, so well-known, in fact, that local kings and noblemen would come to Abraham to learn astrological secrets. That's pretty cool. In fact, we have some of that information that's corroborated from outside sources, outside of the Jewish world. We have some historical documentation. By the way, any, anyone who wants to know the source, uh, I'm going to do a shameless plug, anyone who wants to know all the sources and ins and outs can uh, purchase my book sometime over the weekend, The Jewish Guide to the Mysterious. Had to throw that out there. Shameless plug. So Abraham is consulted Abraham is a master of astrology. And what's, well, what's really interesting is that Abraham, who lived in Babylonia, and also dates to the time, or even according to secular historians, astrology started. So Abraham is living at the time and at the place of the hub of astrology. There are certain things that, there are certain times in our tradition that the Talmud goes into great detail, telling us that, that astrology was used in a positive sense. Abraham is told he's going to have a son. God tells him he's going to have a son. God takes him outside of his house and tells him that his descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And the Talmud explains that Abraham was convinced that he wasn't going to have a son with Sarah. Why wasn't he going to have a, a, a son with Sarah? Because he was a master of astrology, he looked at the stars and saw that that wasn't the case. So God brings him outside and tells him, whoa, 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 wait a second over here. Who's, who's in charge of the universe over here? Go out of your house, meaning go out of your astrology. I make the rules over here. So Abraham was right. That was the, what the model said. But God said, I'm, I'm taking you out of your astrology. Get out of your calculations a little bit. King Solomon is said to be very knowledgeable in astrology as well. A solar eclipse was seen as a bad omen for non-Jewish nations, and a lunar eclipse was seen as a bad omen for the Jewish people. The Talmud writes about Tuesdays being an auspicious day because the Torah says that says the word 
uh, Kitov, it says that the, it was good twice. It repeats it. So Tuesday is like an extra bit of good. It's an auspicious time. Similarly, the month of Adar, the month where Purim is, is said to be an auspicious time. A person uh, codified in Jewish law, in the Talmud and in Jewish law, if a person has a court case that they're dealing with a non-Jewish person, it says that the, the mazel of the Jewish people, the luck of the Jewish people, the energy is a bit stronger in the month of Adar. So it says if you can push it to the month of Adar, better to do it that way. And it says the opposite regarding the month that we're in, especially the first nine days of the month of Av. We're in Av right now, and it says when, when Av comes, it's like a, a, uh, the energy is, uh, is a lull. It's, it's, not, it's not a joyous month. It's much more sort of a... So in any case, the idea of months and days having a certain energy to them has tremendous value and, and uh, meaning in our tradition. Now, I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty, some of the really cool stuff. All right, you with me? All right, let's go. So the Talmud, the Gemara and Shabbos, tells us how a person can gain insight into themselves, insight into their personality based on their astrology, based on certain features. And so the Gemara says, the Talmud says, that based on what was created on that day of creation in the Torah's creation model, you can tell about a person's personality. So, for example, on Sunday, what was created on the first day of creation? First day of creation was the creation of light and darkness. So being that that was what was created in the grand model, also a person that was born on Sunday, the Talmud says, tends towards extreme, either one way or the other, light or darkness, black and white. Similarly, Monday, we'll go through all of them. Monday, right? Monday's the day in the creation of the story where God separates the waters. And so, likewise, what's that reflect in a person's personality? That that person might have a tendency towards seclusion or anger, right? Being, like, separating, the separation. Tuesday, people who are born on Tuesday, what does the Gemara say? What does the Talmud say? God created herbs and vegetation, so that person has a proclivity toward wealth and promiscuity. Right? Oh, boy. Right? A tendency. We're going to get more into this. Don't worry. Don't, don't, don't worry yet. Wednesday, the fourth day of creation, God creates and puts the luminaries in their place, the sun, the moon, and the stars in their place. Well, just like the sun and the moon and the stars are very radiant, that person will be wise and radiant. Again, proclivity towards that. Thursday, the fifth day of creation, God creates the fish and the birds. So that person exudes kindness, has a proclivity towards kindness. Friday, God creates mankind and gives him instruction. The person born on a Friday has a proclivity towards zealousness, the Talmud says. Right? That's when the commands were given. And Shabbos, the holy day, God sanctifies as the Sabbath as a holy day. Now that's a day that the person has a tendency towards holiness. Again, now... Aside from the day of the week, the Talmud goes even further. Same page of the Talmud. The Talmud says what actually gives even more influence on a person, greater than the day, is the hour that they were born. The hour of the day that they were born. In fact, this hour that you were born on, this contains a tremendous amount of even more specific meaning to your life. And so... The, 
there, there are said to be seven influential parts of our solar system, seven luminaries in the solar system, which are all the planets that you can see with the naked eye, all the objects that you can see in our solar system with the naked eye. So that's the sun and the moon. That's an object in our solar system you can see with the naked eye. Sun and the moon, the planet Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Those are the seven. Those are the seven you can see with the naked eye. You don't need a telescope. You don't need anything. Now, what our tradition teaches is that those are the relevant energies that, are, that we have any sort of relevance to. The sages, it says, knew about the other planets that were out there and knew much farther, but that they don't play the same relevance in shaping personality and shaping tendency uh, in our lives. So uh, there is an hourly influence. Each one of these celestial signs has an hourly rotation Whatever place you're at in the world, that is the energy that is being conveyed. Now, when we think of astrology, I want to just uh, remind everybody, when we think about astrology, there's not necessarily a mechanism that is like pulling on you to, uh, to make you a certain way. What I mean by that is that there's not like some force that's coming from Jupiter's placement uh, in relation to where you're at that's pulling on you a certain way and makes you a certain way. One of the ways that astrology can be described as working is similar to a, uh, a clock, right? That, that it's, it, it's a reflection of the reality. What I mean by a clock? So in the same way that the flight takes off at 4 p.m., right? So as soon as 4 p.m., as soon as it's 4 p.m., the plane starts you know, going down the runway, it leaves its, leaves its port. Now, be, when it turns 4 o'clock, that's what's going to happen. But it wasn't because the clock shows 4 o'clock now that the plane is leaving. It just, they happen to correspond with each other. The nature of the clock is just to tell you what's sort of going on in the world at that particular time. It's more of a sign. It's not that the clock striking 4 makes the plane, has any sort of active causation that the plane leaves. And so in a similar way, when it comes to the stars in the sky or the planets in our solar system, it's not that, oh, well, Jupiter's there in that physical location, so that's pulling me in a direction. No, but it's an indicator based on where I'm at of what energy might be relevant and what's going on in the world at that time. Just want to clarify. Now, when God put the luminaries in their place on the fourth day of creation, our tradition teaches something very interesting, that it wasn't just put them out there. That it says that in our solar system, God put each of the planetary influences from farthest to closest as having influence over our reality. So in the very first hour of the fourth day of creation, when God puts the luminaries in their place, the first hour, God puts Saturn. Saturn's the farthest object in our solar system that we can see with the naked eye, the farthest object as the dominant influence. The second hour of creation, God puts Jupiter. That's the next closest, right? And it goes in order. So it goes Saturn, right? And then, and then Jupiter, and then Mars, and then the Sun, and then Venus, and then Mercury, and then the Moon. The moon's the closest. And so every hour, there is a dominant planetary force that has a relevance to what's going on in the particular area of whatever time that is. And so what I'd like to show you is what, the, what that would look like on paper, all right? Check it out for a second, all right? 
if you were to make a chart, so the, the day, you see day four of creation in the, in the, it's the middle column, it says day four at the top. So that's day four. So what our sages have done was divide up the week into you know, seven days of 24 hours and the seven influences that began, remember in, in our tradition, the day begins at night. So they've divided into six hours of nighttime, six hours of daytime. And the day begins, the fourth day of creation begins 6 p.m., we'll call it, on Tuesday night. So day four, Yom Revi, begins 6 p.m. on Tuesday night, just like Shabbos begins 6 p.m. Friday night, for lack of a better term. So this is the model to which we determine what, when you were born, what influence was going on in the place that you were born. Now, here's, here's some interesting stuff that I want you to consider. So that means that every Friday night, for example, at 6 p.m., when Shabbos begins, the very first hour of Shabbos, that that's considered, at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. time, whatever location you're at, the planet Mars is the dominant force. So there, there is a tradition, many of you maybe have seen in your Chabad house, there is a tradition amongst, amongst some that are have a, an inclination towards Jewish mysticism, to not make Kiddush during the hour, between the hour of six and seven. You may have seen that, so, you may have been to somebody's house and they wanted to wait till seven o'clock until they make Kiddush. Not, that's not the law, but there are mystical texts that say that if you're going to make Kiddush and you're going to sanctify the day, you don't do it when Mars is the dominating force. Because the Talmud relates that Mars has the proclivity towards bloodshed. Mars is harsh, harsh energy. Each, each, uh, so a person who's born under the sun, it says that they have a lustrous appearance. A person born under Venus has a proclivity towards wealth and promiscuity. A person born under Mercury will be radiant and wise. A person born under the moon will suffer uh, afflictions. Uh, with Saturn, one perspective is that, that every plan that the person makes will, will come to naught. Uh, the person born under Jupiter, it says, has a proclivity towards righteousness. And the person under Mars has a proclivity towards bloodshed. Now, let's discuss, okay? Let's talk about what this chart means. But, th but this is why you see in your Chabad house, or you see sometimes that there are people that don't want to make Kiddush between 6 and 7. Because at 6 p.m. On, on Friday night, which is the first hour of Shabbos, Mars is the dominating force. And Mars has this energy of bloodshed. And so if you're going to make Kiddush, you might as well do it when it's not the bloodshed time. So then you would just add the extra hour. Like, so we'll, we'll get to that, okay? Now, take a look at this, at this chart for a, little, for, a, for a minute. I want to I talk to you about some interesting things that we can learn about our days of the week, as we call them in English, outside of Jewish tradition. Right? So, because in secular society, we call it Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and all of these different things. Fine. Now, 
clearly the, the words that we're using. Remember, it was the Romans that named our days of the week, and they did it, they named it after their Roman gods. And so each day of the week was dedicated to one of their Roman gods and one of the bodies in the solar system. Seven days in a week, seven celestial objects in the solar system fits perfectly. So Sunday, who wants to guess what's, what's the object of affection on Sunday? The sun, right? And Monday, right? The moon, exactly. The rest of the week, you can, you can identify better in, like, in their Latin base, because in Roman times, Latin. So Tuesday doesn't sound like anything, but Tuesday in Spanish is Martes. What planet is Martes? Mars. Wednesday is Miércoles, right? What, what planet is that? Mercury, right? And, and Thursday is considered, is, is called Hueves, uh, right? So Hueves is what, it starts with a J, what's Jupiter, right? Friday is Viernes in Spanish, Venus, and Saturday is Saturn Day. So each of the days of the week corresponds to one of the planets, and each of the planets was named after the Roman god that they wanted to honor on that day. What's interesting, so how come we have like Tuesday, right? We have Sunday and Monday, that sounds normal, but what about Tuesday? What does that mean? So the Germanic people, after, after the Roman Empire time, the Germanic people adapted their own system where they introduced the Roman astrology, or, the, or they introduced the Roman system of naming the days, but they named it after their god that had the same theme as whatever Roman god was being honored on that day. So for example, Sunday and Monday remained, right, the day of the sun, day of the moon. Mars was the Roman god of war. Who was the Norse god, the Germanic people, who was the Norse god of war was a god named Tu, T-I-W. So the, instead of it being Mars Day or Martis, right, it became Tuesday. Same thing with, right, Mercury is Wednesday, right? We said Miracles, you can easily see it. But when the Germanic people got a hold of it, so Mercury was the Roman deity that accompanied the soul after death. Who was the god that did that in Norse mythology? Woden, Woden's Day, Wednesday. Everyone, everyone wonder why is Wednesday spelled, spelled so weird, right? Wednesday, what, what is that, right? It's Woden's Day. And, and same thing, Jupiter was it's for Thursday, right? So again, Jupiter was the god of the sky, right? The god of sky and thunder in Roman mythology. Who's the god of thunder in Norse mythology? Thor or Thor's day, right? Same thing with Friday. Friday, Venus, right? Viernes in, in, uh, in Spanish. Venus in North mythology, excuse me. Venus in North, Norse mythology, say that 10 times fast, was Frigg, Frigga, like Frigga's day, Friday, like an abbreviation. So we see how the days of the week were named according to the God that they wanted to honor that day. Now, here's a question for you. Why this order? Why Okay, I understand that they're each named after one of the objects in the solar system, but why is the first day of the week Sun's Day? 
right? And the, the second day is Monday, moon. And the third day is after Mars. Why? Why that particular order? Right? Why not, why not call the, the third day of the week Sunday? Right? Why, why, did, why did it adopt in this order? So the answer is found in Jewish astrology. The answer is found in Jewish astrology. How so? If you take a look at the chart, the very first daylight hour of influence of each day of the week, 6 a.m., the first daylight time, represents what day of the week, what day is going to be honored. In other words, the, the 6 a.m. time, you can see it on line 13, the 6 a.m. time, the very first daylight hour on the first day of the week, what's the influential power? The sun. On, and on day two, right, at 6 a.m., what's the first influential power? The moon, Monday. And, and the day three, Mars, all the way across the board. So the reason that the first day of the week and the second day of the week is called Sunday and Monday is because in Jewish astrology, which became popular in, during Roman Empire times, the, the information sort of spread, that those were the hours of influence, those were the dominant hours of influence during the first daylight hour of those days. That's why we have it in the way that we have it. So astrology, the stars in Judaism, are said to be the channel in which God engages with the universe. It's part of the structure that God created, that God created this sort of master system. If you want to consider the universe like a, a computer system or computer program, the stars are part of that in, in demonstrating what energy is meant to be transferred to, the, to, to creation. Now, in fact, the word mazel, it says, comes from the same word as the word to flow, because mazel, the, the stars and constellations, show what energy is being channeled from the divine into creation. Now, the question that's raised in the Talmud is whether the Jewish people, in particular, have a, have, are confined to astrology. Whether they're, in other words, if I'm born in a certain month on a certain day in a certain hour, am I guaranteed? Am I am I am I locked into that? And ultimately, the answer is no. You're not locked into it. Even as an individual, the Jewish nation is certainly not. But even as an individual, we are not locked into that. In fact, we always have the freedom of choice. Part of what makes us divine and special is our capacity for choice. Nobody is limited. The default might be a certain pattern, but nobody is limited to their astrological sign, their zodiac sign, or any of the astrological predictions that would, be go, that would go into their time of birth or wherever, wherever they find themselves in life. Even the person that has a proclivity towards bloodshed, someone who was born under Mars, always has free choice of how they're going to use it. So 
you can't, if a person goes out and becomes an axe murderer, you can't tell the judge, listen, I, I'm sorry, I was born under Mars, you know, what do you want from me? You know? A proclivity towards blood, meaning a comfort around blood, could also lead a person to be a surgeon, to be a shochet, to be a moil, comfortable with blood. The other guy is like, I'm not going near that. Even the person that's proclivity towards bloodshed, that doesn't mean that you're destined to be Charles Manson. You know, that's, that's not what this is about. You always have free choice. In fact, the Torah tells us, Gemara tells us, Talmud tells us, that a person through using their free will can change their destiny. Torah and mitzvahs connecting to God can change your destiny. And the Talmud relates that there are certain stories to show that. So the Talmud relates that Rabbi Akiva was told by an astrologer that his daughter would die on her wedding day. Again, Rabbi Akiva didn't go to the astrologer and ask the astrologer, but while he was walking by, the astrologer said, this is what's going to happen to your daughter on her wedding day. And he kept silent about it. And on her wedding night, she came home from the festivities. And back in the day, when you came home, it was really dark in the house. And she took off her clothing that she had worn for the wedding, took off her veil, and she stuck the veil into the wall, and she went to sleep. And she woke up in the morning. And when she woke up in the morning, after it had gotten light in the room, she noticed that her, the pin of her bridal veil was stuck, stuck directly through the, the head of a, of a snake. That was going to be the snake that was supposedly going to bite her. Now, Rabbi Akiva asked his daughter, what mitzvah did you do? What good deed did you do that changed your destiny? Remember, Rabbi Akiva never told his daughter what the, what the astrologer had said. What happened? What, what did you do? So she said that yesterday, when everyone was preparing for the wedding and all the festivity, you know, everyone went to a house where someone's getting married that day. The house is like, you know, the relatives are in. Everyone's getting ready and cooking and doing and whatever. She said that she was kind of not involved in that, and someone came to the door asking for tzedakah. And nobody in the house heard what was going on because everyone was so caught up in the wedding. And she answered the door, and she gave the person tzedakah, and it was that tzedakah that was her merit from saving her from death. Even though she was quote-unquote predestined, her fate said, her astrology said that she was going to die on her wedding night, she did a mitzvah, she did something special, she did something godly, and her fate changed. There was another incident that took place. Rabbi, Nach Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak was told by also astrologers that uh, the, wife, the mother of Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak, I should say, was told by astrologers that her son, who became Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak, that when he was born, he was going to have a proclivity towards theft. And so her mother, his mother decided that from the time that he's born, she's going to keep his head covered. In fact, one of the, one of the sources of wearing a yarmulke all the time by everyone is this idea that keeping your head covered will always remind him that there's something above. 
don't steal. And it says that Rabbi Nachum Bar Yitzchak, when he was, one time his, his uh, head covering fell off and he had like an urge to steal. But, but being engaged in holiness alters one fate for the better. We're not locked in to our fate. We are not confined by anything. And so this is a really important principle that you can't say, oh, I'm not to blame. I was made this way. I was born this way. This is what's destined for me, whatever it is. I always have the choice to change. I always have something that, I can, that can pull me out of the fate that was allotted to me. Let's get into some Kabbalah. So in Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, uh, we, are we are taught that everything above has a reflection in what's below. Everything below has a reflection of what's above. Now, the word mazel is used in various ways in Kabbalistic and Hasidic terminologies that there are times where your mazel, which describes the chaya of your soul, a, the, the part of our soul that transcends us, that connects us with God, where our faith resides, where our faith resides, this is our mazel. So even the intellect resides, we say, in the head, the emotions reside, so to speak, for lack of a better term, in the heart, but the, that which transcends right, our faith is something above the person. And so this is where our mazel, so to speak, uh, is, is found. So sometimes we're, we're taught in our tradition that there, are, there are, is somebody who has a certain sense of something, certain sense about another person, certain sense about an event. And we say that their mazel sees. It's not that their intellect knows or that their heart feels, that their mazel sees. It sees beyond what the eyes can, can see. And on a birthday, a person's mazel is considered stronger. You have like greater luck, greater mazel, greater vibrant energy in your soul on your birthday. Right? And we always say things like, Mazel tov, right? That it should be a good and auspicious time for your mazel, right? This, this situation should be good and auspicious. But always never losing sight of free will. Now, in Kabbalistic terminology, the number 12 is symbolic of the framework and operation of the natural world. So every day right, is measured in 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of nighttime in Jewish tradition. Uh, likewise, the standard year is divided into 12 months. And so furthermore, the Jewish people are divided into 12 tribes, right? And each one corresponds with each other. Each, each of the tribes correspond with one of the uh, signs of the zodiac. So in other words, the 12 signs of the zodiac correspond to one of the 12 Jewish lunar months and one of the 12 constellations. So Jewish tradition teaches that the channels through which God's splendor comes to the world, the blessings that become manifest come through these uh, machinations. They come through this. This is like the means of transferring that energy. So each of the months are also given a certain energy. And one thing that you'll find, interestingly enough, is that on, on our calendar, we don't have time to go through each individual one. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying it as a, a shameless plug only, but if you want to get in-depth about what each month means and all of the details for, in, from our tradition, you can, you can see it in the book. But the idea is that embedded in each of the months of the Jewish calendar 
is the astrological sign that corresponds with that month. For example, in, what's the first month in the Jewish calendar, on the, according to the months, is Nisan, right? We became a nation in Nisan, Passover is in Nisan. Who knows what the astrological sign for that time of year is? Aries. Any idea why a ram or a lamb would be something relevant to Passover? Exactly, the Paschal lamb, the Paschal sacrifice. Um, give you another idea. So Rosh Hashanah is coming up, and the high holidays are coming up. That's the time, right? Tishrei is the time of God's judgment of the world. Anyone know what astrological sign is relevant? It is Libra. What's the sign of Libra? What does it look like? The scales of justice, right? Embedded in creation, all of this stuff has meaning. Embedded in creation are these energies, are these signs. And we could go through each one if we had uh, more time, um, but we don't. And each of, those, each of those months as well carry with it one of the four elements. They're, co they're considered either air, fire, uh, water, or uh, which one are we missing? Air, fire, wind, uh, earth, yes. And each one of those is said to represent a certain personality trait. So the earth, right, earth represents a person who has a proclivity towards laziness or, or depression. Uh, fire, someone who is a pro, uh, proclivity towards anger, right? You're all fired up. Uh, a person who, a wind, air person is someone who's just like babbling all the time, gossiping all the time, right? Just airy person. And then a person who has a connection with water is someone who indulges in pleasure. But again, these are all proclivities. These are proclivities. And all of the astrology coming together, not just what your sun sign is, what month you were born in, all of the astrological features come into play to make the person the person. One of the reasons that astrology is sort of dismissed in the scientific community is because there's no way to test it. Why is there no way to test it? Because there are so many things that change, that make a, a person a person. There's so many things that shape your personality, your nature, right? your genetics, your nurture, the house you, you, involved, you, you, you grew up in, the environment you grew up in, the people you interacted with, your life experiences. Your nature and nurture play major roles in addition to your astrology. So astrology could be very real and very relevant in a person's life, but it will also be heavily influenced by your nature and your nurture. So there's no way to really test it, which is why scientists would say, well, well, you know, you're a Gemini and you're a Gemini, and you have completely different personalities. Why? Well, there's a reason for that, right? Different life experiences. I want to close with an idea. We have to close, unfortunately, because I got the sign that it's five minutes left, and I want to take at least some questions, maybe. Well, I, I, want to, I want to end with, 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 uh, with, a, with a takeaway that I think is very relevant to all of our lives. The relevant takeaway is as follows. Astrology is the system in which God create, in, in which God maintains the universe, meaning it's the, it's the faded structure of how the operation works. It's the computer program, if you will. It's the system, if you will, of how the universe works. Now, anyone in this audience, I, it happened to me this week, anyone in the audience that ever got a, a phone bill or a car insurance bill that was really, like, way above where it was supposed to be. And like, then, then you, you call, you call AT&T or whatever, and you say, 
why, why, is my, why is my bill so high? And they say, well, X, Y, and Z reason, blah, blah, blah. Um, or you, you have a flight, you want to change your flight, whatever it is, you call. And, and, and what happens when the receptionist on the phone tells you, as they tend to do, I'm sorry, sir or ma'am, this is the system, this is how it works, there's nothing I can do to help. What does every good Jewish person do when on the phone in that situation? Let me speak to your supervisor. <laughs> Let me speak to your supervisor. And a Jew, in particular, won't rest at the next supervisor. If this, that supervisor can't help, what do you say? Let me speak to your supervisor. The supervisor, I want to go to the CEO of the company. That's not how the system works. That's not what your program will allow you to do. I want to talk to your supervisor. And this is also how the universe works. The stars and constellations, astrology can tell us a lot of different things. What our proclivities are. What's in store in some, in some way. However, we can never forget that all of it is essentially worthless. Why? Because we have access to the supervisor. Oh, the computer system doesn't tell you that? The computer program won't let you do that? I want to speak to the computer programmer who can make that happen. I want to be like the daughter of Rabbi Akiva whose destiny said one thing, but through mitzvahs, God said another thing. You're not limited by your personality. You're not limited by your fate. You have no limitations. You can make the choice to be different. You shouldn't say, well, this is how my grandparents were, and this is how my parents were, so obviously it's going to come to me. It runs in my family. You have the ability to say, it ran in my family until it ran into me. I'm going to be different. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to live a goodly and godly life. And through that free choice, that's what makes a destiny. Enjoy your retreat. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.